4: The Gemini Method means dismemberment. Uh, they would kill you, set you on a hook to drain.
5: The Gemini Method is the system of killing developed by Gambino family associate Roy DeMayo and his crew.
4: They would kill you in the apartment but just behind the Gemini Lounge that Roy owned. All right, so th- you would
2: have a spaghetti dinner, and then they would come up with some reason to bring you into the back room of the adjoining apartment.
1: Behind that door was the guy that was going to do the killing. And then somebody pulled a gun out and they'd shoot him. And then Chris Rosenberg would normally take a knife and plunge it in the guy's heart because that would stop the blood from spreading all over. He was either in his underwear or he
2: had some sort of a plastic uh Uh, sheathing around him and once they realized that he was dead they took him into the shower and hung him uh, upside down like a deer have you ever seen a deer gutted that's how they do it and then he went back outside and finished supper
4: and when you sufficiently drain yourself of enough blood they would then strip you lay you down on a pool liner and start to dismember your body and Roy taught them. Roy taught them all how to sever the joints, cut the tendons, and everything else. This is the easy way. This is not the sloppy way. It makes it
1: easier. And then they three or four they had special boning cutting knives, and they just carve up the body in a variety of pieces, put it into a garbage bag, and then dump it out, uh, dump it to a dumpster or a trash can, and they clean up the apartment.
4: Roy never, never even took off his rubber gloves. He just went along with the the things the way they were. And then he would say, let's hurry up. You'll you clean up because I, I got to go. I have to attend my, my daughter's birthday party. That was Roy DeMeo.
5: Some estimate the DeMeo crew killed upwards of 250 people. They were dismembered, tossed into garbage bags, and put to rest at the Fountain Avenue dump, a landfill in Brooklyn's Canarsie neighborhood, never to be seen or heard from again. And from the late 1970s through the early 80s, it was Dominic Montiglio assigned to keep an eye on the DeMeo crew for his uncle, Gambino underboss Nino Gaggi. Dominic had to make sure nothing got too out of hand. But he could never be sure what he'd find when he stepped foot in the Gemini Lounge.
2: They were just crazy. They just loved chopping bodies up.
0: And they'd get depressed, right, if they didn't have people? Oh, I could
2: walk in there, like, I used to go there, like, Three times a week, four times a week. And I could walk in there and, and just tell if they hadn't killed anybody lately, because they'd all be depressed. They'd all be just, like, sitting around moping.
5: From I.D., I'm Celia Anaskovic, and this is Mafia Tapes. Episode 3 living with the animals.
2: The first time I met Kenny McCabe was outside veterans and friends. I mean, I I wasn't introduced. I didn't actually meet him, but I was with Roy and Nino and we came out of veterans and friends and McCabe was sitting with his partner. His name was Tony Nelson, I believe.
5: Tony Nelson, otherwise known as Anthony Nelson. We first heard from Anthony back in episode one. When he was a kid, he witnessed a murder, and instead of calling the cops, his friend rushed to call the Daily News. But unlike other boys from the neighborhood, Anthony didn't become a mobster. Instead, he became a special agent with the FBI. It's the late 1970s, and Anthony is working undercover.
1: I operated a warehouse in the Red Hood section of Brooklyn. Many arrests were made as part of that operation, but even more importantly, I had uh, developed an even more impressive array of informants.
5: It's through one of them that Anthony first hears the name, Roy DeMeo.
1: On one occasion in late 1977, I had received a telephone call from an informant who tipped me off to a hijacked shipment of electronic equipment that was stored on a rental truck in the Sheepshead Bay section of Brooklyn. He also told me that the load was uh, going to a guy who reported to a Roy DeMeo. And up until that time, that was the first time I had heard Roy DeMeo's name. He told us that Roy was with the Gambino family and with a campo known as Nino. That was another name I had not been familiar with until that point.
5: Anthony sets up a meeting with the Brooklyn DA's office to share what he's heard. It's here Anthony meets Detective Kenny McCabe.
1: Kenny was my like my brother. Kenny never bragged. He was a very imposing figure physically, but uh, he was the nicest person in the world. More important, I can't tell you how impressive he was in terms of his photographic memory, of remembering every face, every detail of what he had seen.
5: Anthony and Kenny spent hours together running surveillance on the Gambino family. Through their surveillance, they find out exactly what Roy DeMeo looks like.
1: Roy had a very deceiving look. If you were to pass him in the street, he had a very retro 1950s look. He didn't look like your typical gangster who was often dressed in a sweatsuit or had gold chains around him or had a certain type of clothing they would wear, certain types of shoes, certain type of hairstyle. Roy was very retro looking. He looked like something that came right out of the 1950s.
5: They also learned that Roy was recently given a major promotion.
1: According to that informant, DeMeo had recently been made, made is an expression, again, on the street of uh, someone who was formally inducted into the mafia. In this case, the Gambino family.
5: Together, the two investigators become a regular thorn in Roy DeMeo's side. The way Dominic tells it, Roy is not pleased.
2: Roy, right away, is that fucking McCabe. I said, who is it? And Roy explained to me that Kenny was... Like, almost like an appendage on Roy's side, like wherever Roy was. Kenny showed up. Yeah.
5: One of the best ways to find out who's who in the mafia world is to sit outside various social clubs. Social clubs don't really exist anymore. Thanks to the RICO Act passed in 1970, nearly all the various bars, restaurants and other legitimate businesses that acted as mob fronts have closed. But back in Dominic's day, you would be sure to see a wise guy or two or seven hanging outside one of these establishments. When Paul Castellano is made boss, he wants a social club of his own. So he opens Veterans and Friends, an innocuous stucco storefront with half-drawn Venetian blinds. Nino Gaggi, Dominic's uncle, doesn't like going to veterans and friends. And the mere existence of the club makes him uneasy. Nino likes flying under the radar.
2: Because until veterans and friends opened, um, Nino was an unknown character, you know? And he had told me that. He said, this club's gonna be the end of me. Because nobody knew who he was. You know, they knew the name, they knew this guy Nino
1: was out there, but they didn't know who he was.
5: It's only out of duty and loyalty to Paul that Nino shows up.
1: I would often receive informant information about high-level mafia meetings that were planned, and we would conduct less than discreet surveillance of them. We were quickly becoming an annoyance to all members of the families. During one night, Kenny and I saw a middle-aged man who was not yet known to us. This middle-aged man we saw was being afforded a great deal of respect by known wise guys who were at the club that night. And suddenly, we saw that he was kissed on the cheek by Roy DeMeo and was ushered to a Cadillac that was parked nearby. Kenny jotted down the plate number and it came back to an Anthony Gaggi. Now, after reviewing our files and his files, Kenny and I suddenly realized that Gaggi was Roy DeMeo's boss, Nino, that we had heard about.
5: His days of flying under the radar are all but over. Nino Gaggi is now a known quantity. It won't be long before this spells disaster. You see, this is around the same time that Dominic has fully made his choice to become a gangster. He's planted bombs in people's cars and is eager to appease his uncle. But how far will he take it? How far will he go to gain his uncle's approval? And if Nino's known to the authorities, it's only a matter of time before they become aware of Dominic. On August first, nineteen seventy-three, Dominic's wife Denise gives birth to a baby girl. They name her Camery. My parents—they um, were really
3: into music, uh, and there's a band called Mother Earth um, from the '60s. And on their um, album "Living with the Animals," there's an inscription to a lady named Tamari Dean, and. It was written in Celtic writing, so it looked like a C to them. So I ended up with the Camry instead of Tamry, which I think I like Camry better anyway.
5: Dominic is settling into his life as a family man in the same house where he grew up, the same house where Paul Castellano would be made boss, where Dominic would send his wife and three-year-old daughter away as he played the part of lookout with an M2 carbine semi-automatic rifle in his hands.
3: We lived in a, they called it a bunker. It was a three-story home. And we lived on the top floor. It was me, my mother, and my father. Then um, on the other levels, we had my great-grandmother. And then on the other floor, I believe it was my father's Uncle Nino and my aunt and their
5: children. And inside, it's a 70s dream.
3: So it was like orange and black and cream colored everywhere. You know, it was that shag carpet with the the thick little bristles of fibers. And it was just like a little 1970s little hippie house, kind of, you know, upstairs. My mom knitted stuff and she had this really elaborate lion thing that she did with string and it was framed. And I had a little bedroom that was just really cute. It had white and yellow bamboo
5: wallpaper. It was great. Camery is close with her entire family, including Uncle Nino. I loved him. He He was a cool man,
3: if that makes sense. You know, he'd walk into the room and he kind of demanded that respect. He would chase us around and play with us, and he always had the dark sunglasses on inside the house and we'd be like, why do you have your sunglasses on? And he'd take his sunglasses off and he would just like make his eyes really big and start chasing us around. And I mean, he was funny. He was funny and always very warm to my mother. And that's what I remember about him. I was never scared of him or anything because, you know, he was just my uncle and
5: he was always nice to me. Though Nino's known as a tough boss, He's also someone who cares deeply for his family.
3: Yes, Nino was the type of man that took care of his family, period. He wasn't the type that had a girlfriend. He didn't run around on his wife. He didn't do drugs. He didn't drink. He took care of his family. And according to Camarie, this includes Dominic. My father, from what I heard, it was like a father-son relationship. And they were very close, and my father looked up to him and really cared about what Nino thought of him.
5: For Camry, those early days in Brooklyn are idyllic. But like all good things, those idyllic days will come to an end. Throughout my reporting, people often shared stories and memories of Dominic to give me a better understanding of the man. These anecdotes were carefully selected to teach me something about Dominic or show me a side of him they felt was important. There's one story in particular that stands out for me, one in which Dominic the gangster and Dominic the family man come head to head. During a fateful birthday party back in 1976, Dominic's two worlds collide. In this moment, Dominic chooses to put aside his responsibilities as a family man and put his gangster family first.
2: It was my wife's birthday party, right? And we're all, you know, birthdays were a big thing in my house. You we know, had the cake I and mean, we had all the presents and shit. And Moy DeMayo came over and he said, Guess who I just saw on 85th Street hanging out in front of the candy store? He said, Vinnie Mook.
5: Vinnie Mook. The nickname given to Vincent Governara, Dominic's former classmate. A year earlier, Dominic planted a bomb in Vincent's car. He survived, and according to Dominic, fled to California.
2: Because he thought it was Sammy the Bull's crew Jerry Papa, Sammy the Bull, Jamie Emma. He thought it was them doing it. So when they assured him, you know, that he could come back, he came
5: back. Vinnie Mook returns to Brooklyn with a target on his back.
2: Once Nino heard that, he said, all right, let's go downstairs. We went downstairs. We loaded up and we put on our disguises and stuff.
5: Dominic grabs a dungaree floppy hat and pulls it below his brow. He pairs it with a fake facial scar made out of rubber cement. The overly cautious Nino goes all out, donning a hat, clear glasses, and a phony mustache. Roy, on the other hand, opts for no disguise at all, sticking to his signature disheveled look. As they leave the party donned in their various disguises, I wonder, what's going through Dominic's mind? He has to know they're headed to finish off Benny Mook. I remember them leaving,
3: him whispering to my mother, and them leaving, and then they were gone for a while.
5: They creep through the shadows and linger outside the candy store the last spot Benny Mook was seen, when suddenly, he arrives.
2: And when he went to go to his car, we just shot him in the street. And <clears throat> we were using Roy's car, a white caddy, and we got in the, in the car, we're trying to pull out, you know, cause we were like, kinda like, few moves to pull out. And there's this fucking guy behind us blowing his fucking horn, right?
5: The murderous trio are stuck, unable to flee the scene. All thanks to some Brooklyn traffic.
2: And Nino was saying to Roy, he's saying, this fucking guy knew just what we just did. You think he'd be blowing his horn? And Roy said, you know, you want me to get in a car? I'll whack him right now. I'll just shoot him in the fucking head. <laughs> and Nino said, no, no, he didn't do nothing. He's just blowing his horn. You know.
5: The man blowing his horn is set free. He'll never know how close he came to becoming victim number two. Despite all of the details Dominic has shared about Vinnie Mook's killing, one crucial element is missing. Who pulled the trigger? Who killed Vinnie Mook? Could it have been Dominic? Could he be omitting certain details to make himself seem less culpable? Even if it wasn't Dominic, he was close by. Does Dominic's proximity to Vincent's death make him guilty? Does it make him a murderer? His close friend Ross isn't so sure.
0: I mean, I don't know. To this day, there's no record of, like, any real murders that Dom was involved in. I mean, he did try to blow up Vinnie Mook, but he didn't kill him. Um, and uh, I think he, he was around murderers. You know what I'm saying? Like he was around killers, but I, Dom, him in in and of himself, I didn't know him to be a killer. You know, he never he never described himself that way to me. Like, you know what I'm saying? In the streets, so there's like the DeMeo crew, right? Those guys were killers. They were going around whacking people left and right and chopping them up into pieces. Like Dom wasn't hacking people up into pieces.
5: If he was, would that change your opinion about him? Um,
0: Would it change my opinion about him? I mean, to be 100% honest, I would be like, wow, you got that in you? Like you could really do that? I, I don't know if it would make me less of his friend, I think it takes a special type of individual to be able to dispose of bodies in that way and chop a human being into pieces. But like, let me tell you something about Dominic. He never killed an animal. Like we used to talk about hunting and he'd be like, ah, Rossi, I can't kill a fucking deer or any of that shit. I'd be like, really? You've never been hunting? Nah, I don't want to do that. I want to kill an animal, you know? So like, he's not like a cold hearted guy. It's like, that's the difference. Like, you know what I'm saying? These guys that like do that type of stuff, believe me, they're not like doing do up and, you know, making music and, you know, doing art and shit like that. Like Dominic had the soul of an artist and he also, that's the thing about him. I mean, don't get me wrong. He, he, he was a killer in Vietnam, but like, I just, he wasn't that guy in the streets. Like he was doing, he was, he was working for his uncle Nino as a driver he was doing errands for his Uncle Nino. You know what I'm saying? But he wasn't like a hardcore like hitman or something like this. That was not who Dom was.
5: Even if Dominic has the soul of an artist, he's also able to see a man shot and return to his house for cake. The death of Vinnie Mook Governara, in my opinion, is the turning point in Dominic's life. He may not have originally moved back to New York with the intention of living a life of crime, but from placing a bomb to taking part in Governor's murder, Dominic makes his choice. However, could a different choice have been made? Could he have stayed in the bunker and celebrated his wife's birthday instead of venturing out with his uncle and Roy DeMayo in makeshift disguises? Or could he have stayed in California? The fact he didn't pains his friend Richie Emelo. We first heard from Richie in episode one. He grew up with Dominic in Levittown. Even today, Richie can't help but wonder what could have been.
6: He had been free in California. And he come back, and then he winds up with this crew, which is not an ordinary crew, by the way. I mean, they became a murderous crew, and they became Paulie Castellanos' hitman until they had to kill him. You know, God, you had to kill him. In, in, himself put him in cuz he got out of control you know at some point dominic was not really happy about all of this and he went through a lot of shit i mean i was there with him i was those years early 70s in, in soho we were together a lot
5: it's the 70s and the two men are in their prime they want to experience everything life has to offer drugs alcohol and studio 54
2: i mean we could get in and get out of Studio 54 with, like, I mean, I could bring an entourage in there.
5: Studio 54 is notoriously difficult to get into. But Dominic, allegedly, has a hookup. And Richie is happy to tag along.
6: Oh, please. (laughs) Yeah, they were on the door. The Gambinos had the door. We used to buy champagne and be on the balcony and just squirt it all over everybody and stuff.
5: Soon, the mystique of Studio 54... With its opulence, drugs, and the man in the moon with a cocaine spoon, loses its appeal for Richie.
6: You know, it was okay. You know, the trouble is you could never go to the bathroom there because everybody's doing blow or screwing in the bathroom. I had to go across to a French bistro across the street to go and urinate, you know. It's, it's annoying after a while. He wasn't, he's uh, only glamorous if you were very high and you were dancing all night, you know.
5: Dominic loves the excess, he becomes a regular often partying there with Henry Borelli of the DiMeo crew.
2: Henry was the oldest. Henry was my age. I mean, Henry Borelli killed his first guy at 14. stabbed him to death. You know.
5: He also meets another person of interest, the so-called Quaalude Queen of New York. With Dominic's help, she moves massive quantities of Quaaludes from a shady pharmacist in Greenwich Village through all the most popular clubs in New York City. With the Queen comes opportunities. Opportunities with terrible repercussions. Selling drugs is a major taboo with the Gambino family. Paul Castellano, like Carlo before him, wants to keep to the usual illicit mob activities of loan sharking, construction, and gambling. No drugs. Here's FBI Special Agent Anthony Nelson again.
1: And At the time... That was a no-no. I mean, I'm sure that Castellano enjoyed collecting the proceeds of some of these criminal enterprises that were beneath him, but he didn't want to hear about drug dealing.
5: Though Dominic has work through his Uncle Nino, it isn't enough. He's stuck at the same salary he was given when he started five years ago. $250 a week, minus rent for the bunker. Not enough to support his family, and definitely not enough to support his new lifestyle. So he turns to the one thing he's not supposed to. Dominic Montiglio starts selling drugs.
2: We were getting all the fucking cocaine we needed. We were getting all the quaaludes we needed. You know, so it was just ridiculous. And we made a lot, a lot of money. You know, I mean, so much cash that you didn't know where to put it. I mean, I built one trap in my house to put it and I had to build another trap in my house to put it.
5: He partners with Henry Borelli of the DeMeo crew and the Quaalude Queen.
2: So basically what happened is we started, we, we didn't start, we took over the Quaalude market at Studio 54. And in the 70s, it was a hell of a market. I mean, we were getting these jars for $500 a piece, you know. And there was 500 pills in a jar. And she was moving them at $10 a piece. So we were paying $500 for it. We were getting our return was $5,000.
5: Dominic breaks with both families, his blood relations and his Gambino crime family. He isn't a dutiful husband like Nino. And as a drug dealer... He's explicitly going against mafia code to make a buck.
6: It's not good enough to have two kids go to Yankee game and buy them a couple of hot dogs and go home and have a barbecue, you know. It's just not good enough for them. They want to make money. They want to. They want a lot of money quick. That's where they do it. You know, they see uh, they're not, it's not going to happen in their regular routine, so they take, a, you know, and they're either tough guys, they grew up as tough guys, or, and they took a shot at doing it, you know. And he makes some money for a while. I mean, Dominic had a lot of money. It's destructive. It? This dysfunctional is, is not adequate to really describe the type of life it is. It's a life of crime. But that time, he had nothing else. He had needed some money. He had to do something, and he was used to it. You know, he didn't have a, a fallback industry to to uh, make a living. He it's already was set. You know, he's type set. And that's the way he had to go.
5: And did you know, I mean, Dom was you know, doing a lot of drugs then, and everybody was doing a lot of drugs, but, um, you know, in, in talking to people who who knew him and, and him himself, I mean, he was developing a drug problem. I mean, were you aware of that?
6: <laughs> That's the funniest thing you've said all night. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm sorry. It's just, uh, y- these are the You realize what years these are, of course.
5: Just a few years after becoming a father, Dominic is spending less and less time with his family, preferring the pulsating lights of the disco to quiet nights at home. He was never home. He was never home.
3: You know, there was a point where I started calling him Dominic instead of dad, you know, because he wasn't home. It was me and my mother there all the time. And that's it. Now, I knew something was different. I just wasn't quite sure what.
5: Dominic lets loose. He spirals deeper into drugs, alcohol, and Studio 54, and becomes a man of many vices. So, um, my father had
3: been, let me think, I think he had been gone for about three days at that point. and I found out later that he had been binging on cocaine and Jack Daniels, which was his go-to at that time. Um, it was always alcohol, but the cocaine was really a big deal then. And so he came walking up the stairs and he didn't quite make it into the living room. He walked down that hallway I was talking about and he collapsed at my feet in the entranceway to the living room and was seizing.
5: Though Camry is young, she knows exactly what's happening. So it was terrifying. And and
3: that's when I realized that he was different and something was different. I'm like, because when I found out, you know, I knew he he hadn't been home. He hadn't been home. And, you know, I heard, I can't remember the friend that was there with him, but I remember the friend telling my mother what he had been doing. And so it made me realize, oh, he's not having a seizure for epilepsy or for another reason like that. He's having a seizure because he has abused his body for three days,
5: you know. And so that's really when it started to make sense to me. Dominic, in many ways, is becoming like the man he was warned about as a child. The man he was told to cross the street if he ever saw. Dominic is becoming his father, a drunk 'er ne'er-do-well and a menace to his own family. After a night of drinking with his friend Ross back in 2000, Dominic opens up about his father. I imagine empty bottles, cigarette butts, and the room filled with haze. It's a side of Dominic I've never heard before. He sounds vulnerable, broken, and filled with despair.
2: My uncle stole my father from me. You know what it's like to like see your father on that side of the street and really like not be able to work. not be able to go over there and talk to him? You want to see what creates a vicious motherfucker? That's it. That fuck you. You know, it was like, now it was down. Trying to just be a fucking killer. You know, because everything... Was taken away from you. Everything in your fucking heart was gone, man. You had no fucking feelings. And you know, you know what it's like to have no fucking feelings? I mean, to have no feelings. Where you were just like, man, it's a dark place. It's a dark place
5: to go. For Dominic, the absence of a father is the thing that defines him. It's his largest loss, the most important reason his life turns out the way it does.
0: Dom had that really, like, a very strangely dysfunctional reality where, like, you know, Nino was was basically rearing him and And nobody would let him go near his dad. And his dad was estranged from the family. And he just never really was able to have that relationship with him. And, you know, he regretted that for his whole life.
5: The more I learn about Dominic, the more complex he becomes. I'm conflicted. How should I feel about him? Should I have sympathy for Dominic?
6: What do you mean? Dominic's a victim. What are you talking about? Think about that. That's a victim. Everybody suffers when somebody's murdered in your family. By accident, by purpose. But Dominic's the main victim here. Okay? He got lured away from a nice, easy life in California. His beautiful wife. Gets lured back into this sordid, stupid, fucking, bullshit Gambino crap. And he loses his whole life. And everybody's talking about his life like it was some big fucking deal. It's a shit deal. He got the shit end of it. He got sucking into it. He's the victim. There's your victim of the mob.
3: He doesn't like to take responsibility for anything. Anything that has to do with himself. I know he blames Nino. Um, Nino gave him a ton of opportunities to better himself. He didn't start my father off, like, going and collecting money and things like that. That's not how my father started out. Nino actually gave him several businesses to be involved in to where he could have made a legitimate living. And my father messed all of those up. Did he choose this path,
5: or is it forced upon him?
0: You know, um, you grow up in a neighborhood where everybody... That's what they're doing. Like in those days, Bensonhurst and, and those areas, I mean, everybody around was involved in this type of lifestyle that was certainly interconnected into Dom's world. Um, so the concept of right and wrong and stuff is a little bit different for guys growing up that way than other people.
6: The uncle ruined a beautiful marriage, uh, destroyed his family life. Very sad.
3: He likes to play the blame game. He likes to blame Nino. He likes to blame Nino for the mob stuff. He likes to blame Nino for, he said, chasing his father away. He likes to, you know, but when it all came down to it, it was him that made those choices. My father made those choices. You know, nobody
5: forced him. Dominic's friends and family all have different perceptions of the man. But whose stories are real? Who can I actually believe?
0: For me, again, because I got to know him on a personal level over so many years, and I heard stories many times, and not just from him, but I met people in his life. And so I got a rounded idea of, like, what I believe the ultimate truth is.
3: And I don't think that Ross really knows A lot about the real truth. Because the majority of what Ross knows came from my father.
5: Dominic, as I've said, contains multitudes. Each of his friends, his family, see him differently. No one can agree on who he is. Which of his Big Fish stories are true?
0: (laughs) When I saw Big Fish, because I saw it after... I was already with Don living with him. I was just like, oh my God, like this is dumb. <laughs> it's like they right. don't believe it, but then you corroborate half of it and you know how the other half was just like, you know, floating out there. I mean, it's just that's that's dumb. So right, right. you're never gonna get something that's completely fabricated. But he, he might like blow it up. Like like he played like he probably jammed with the guys from um, Tower of Power and hung out with them, but next thing you know, he's on the record with them.
5: It became all too apparent that I'd have to find out for myself by going to the source, by asking Dominic Montiglio. There's one problem. Digging into this story, I learned Dominic was recovering from a tracheotomy. He was unwell and literally unable to talk. And while I feared I'd never get the chance to set the record straight, there was something Kimmery had said to me that I couldn't quite shake. If a nuclear
3: bomb went off, the only things that would survive would be cockroaches and my father. And he would be sitting there watching TV with his remote, his cigarette, and his freaking thing of scotch in his hand.
5: And he'd be like, what happened? Sure enough, a few weeks after I began speaking with Dominic's friends and family, I hear from Ross that Dominic has made a remarkable and unexpected recovery. He's home. And his voice is back. As the phone rings, I wonder if he'll even answer. And if he does, which Dominic will greet me? The hero, the dedicated nephew, the con man? Or the mobster who ran around with a band of serial killers? Hello. Hey, Dominic. It's Celia. How are you? Okay. Dominic immediately yeah. seems different from the Dominic and Ross's tapes. As
2: well as possible.
5: Tired. Hopeless. Because you know it's not true. the charismatic mobster I was so used to hearing. You just sit there is nowhere you. to be found.
2: Like I've had so many of these interviews, and you know none of it's true. But these people love it. You know you're lying, but they don't. In the long run, you laugh at them because they believed all this stuff. And you tell them what they want to hear, and they're happy as hell with that. And it's always worked. Until, oddly enough, and I'm not pulling your chain, until, oddly enough, we ran across you guys. I won't lie to you people because you're too real.
5: He's definitely pulling my chain. But despite that tug, if Dominic is willing to tell me the whole story, I'll listen. Mafia Tapes is produced by Gigantic Pictures for I.D. The show is hosted, written, and produced by me, Celia Anoskovich. Story producers are Caitlin Colford and Maggie Robinson-Katz. Producers are Pamela Ryan and Jeff Spivak. Music by Allison Leighton-Brown. Sound designer is Sam Baer.